0: Because God gave us story, and he gave us storytellers and makes us storytellers, I think that we can also discover just as many facets of human character and story that we can in the Word. Mm
1: Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are a living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Camille Eady. She writes more than a romance tales of love, faith, and grace. Her novels are both contemporary and historical, and include award winning titles The Memoir of Johnny Devine and Wings Like a Dove. She lives in Oregon with her handsome husband Hero and is a mom, Grammy, church administrator, Leadfoot, and baker. She's obsessed with waterfalls and the natural beauty of the Pacific Northwest. Most of all, she has a passion for God's amazing grace. Camille hopes that spending time with her characters will make you fall in love, laugh, think, and shed a tear. She also hopes that her stories will stir your faith, challenge your mind, and encourage your heart. Well, Camille, I'm so glad that we're able to be together today, and would you like to read something for us?
0: Sure. Sure. This is an excerpt from Pride and Prejudice and uh, Jane Austen who's one of my favorite authors. And it is um, from chapter 48 right after Mr. Bennett returns from resolving his uh, scandalous mess with his daughter Lydia. When Mr. Bennett arrived, he had all the appearance of his usual philosophic composure He said as little as he had ever been in the habit of saying, made no mention of the business that had taken him away, and it was some time before his daughters had courage to speak of it. It was not till the afternoon, when he had joined them at tea, that Elizabeth ventured to introduce the subject, and then, on her briefly expressing her sorrow for what he must have endured, he replied, "'Say nothing of that. Who should suffer but myself?' It has been my own doing, and I ought to feel it. You must not be too severe upon yourself, replied Elizabeth. You may well warn me against such an evil. Human nature is so prone to fall into it. No, Lizzie, let me once in my life feel how much I have been to blame. I am not afraid of being overpowered by the impression. It will pass away soon enough. Mm.
1: I love Jane Austen. (laughs) I really do. What really strikes you about this quote?
0: This quote just came to my mind recently. I have read this book many times and I've watched, I don't know how many adaptations of it um, over and over, but uh, recently I was praying. And as I often am, I'm probably praying about some kind of personal shortcoming of my own that's come to my attention, and this is just between you and I right
1: <laughs> absolutely absolutely, right. and the twelve people who listen to the podcast too
0: right um, <laughs> and so you know shortcomings are, are saddening to me, you know and and as I as usual, I was confessing this failure by asking God to help me change, and then I was also struck with the idea that you know it's great to acknowledge our failures and our weaknesses and even to feel remorse for them, but I can determine to change. And then I I know just from my own (laughs) experience that I can also quickly and promptly forget about this remorse, you know, that, that I felt for a moment. So, and that's another weakness in itself, I suppose. So just being honest here, but that, you know, instantly brought to mind Mr. Bennett, you know, saying, you know, yes, I feel bad. It's my fault. And, you know, don't worry about me. I'm going to, (laughs) the feeling's going to pass soon enough. And so It's just another reminder to me that Austin's work is so fascinating to me because she really does layer her characters with very realistic traits. You get to peel back the layers of her characters and see things if you want to. I don't know. I think of fiction as a mirror as much as the Bible is, you know, where it can show you things about yourself. And I'm not sure if if Jane Austen intended for her readers to see themselves in her characters, but you know, I'm sure I can. And you know, I think we can if we're willing to hold up a mirror to our soul. You know, can I read the Bible and see weakness? You know, I sure can. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think about this too, because God gave us story and he gave us storytellers and makes us storytellers. I think that we can also discover just as many facets of human character and story that we can in the word. So I I applaud Jane Austen for her ability to do that.
1: She's a masterful, masterful storyteller. And I really like Pride and Prejudice, but I have to say my top favorites of hers are Sense and Sensibility and Persuasion.
0: I love Persuasion. I think that's my favorite.
1: And I'll be honest with you, I can't even tell you what happened in Persuasion anymore. Because all oh. of the storylines kind of blend together for me, except for Emma. Emma is like, I, Emma's in the backyard. I I don't talk with Emma. Um, <laughs> but, but the the thing is, is I remember what an impact it had on me. And I'm sure I would enjoy it again just as much when I read it again. Yeah. I've read Sense and Sensibility multiple times.
0: There's so much there.
1: There's so much in... in, in in her writing, and and that she was writing these books at such a young
0: age, right?
1: And that's what I was going to ask you: is when when did you first encounter Pride and Prejudice?
0: Oh, you know that's funny. It, it wasn't until I was uh, a little bit older, like my kids were junior high, probably, and I actually watched a film adaptation because I'd never read any of her work growing up. Um, and after I watched, I'm not sure which version. Off the top of my head, I think it was a 70s version. And I thought, oh, I, I need to read the book. So I, you know, began kind of painstakingly picking my way through, you know, Regency era British vernacular and going, what? What's Felicity? <laughs> what does this mean? I mean, to, and then I just really poured into it. And I'll, I'll have to confess, I had a really hard time with it. So I actually watched film adaptations first and then I would go back and read the novel so that some of the trying to understand what was going on was done for me and I could just enjoy, you know, the writing and her prose and her delight at just going on and on in conversation where people are really digging into each other's character and it's like, oh, all these words, this is amazing.
1: (laughs) That's so much fun. And I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of of enjoying a film adaptation, having that be your introduction to the literature. It's just another way of telling the story.
0: Right. It it helped. Like I said, it it kind of peeled off some of the the layers that I was struggling through as I was reading, you know, kind of too many fannies and I don't know who, you know, all these names that start with the same letter kind of helped to have faces with names and stuff just to get, like I said, some of that challenge of trying to figure out everything out of the way. But I, I love that, that Jane Austen has always told a story that especially in the romantic aspect of it, that was focusing on people's character rather than their externals and getting to the core of who a person is, the love interest basically discovering that.
1: That's a really interesting way to look at it because when you read modern romance, and I mean, there's some really excellent modern romance out there, but it is kind of different because in modern romance you know, the male love interest is always the best guy, best looking guy in the room. Right. And the female love interest is always the prettiest gal you've seen. And you don't get that sense with Austin. I mean, you get the sense that these were lovely people, but not right. that they were ostentatiously stunning and that that's right. the focus of their character.
0: That's a really good right. point. Yeah, I've always been drawn to a story that... uh you know, someone is valuing the person at their core, because I think growing up as a really insecure kid and having abandonment issues, I think I was always drawn to the story that he or she discovered that this is a person, you know, down to the core that I can't live without that, that was always really appealing to me. And, and, you know, as a writer, I try to, I mean, you know, I, you want to, You want to keep your characters, you know, at least decent looking because, you know, it's hard, I guess, you know, to sell a story to somebody, you know, with, with someone who is uh, not, but it's, it's really more about the character, I feel like. Um, You mean
1: you don't want him to fall in love with an ogre?
0: Well, there are stories like that, right? (laughs) Fairy tales. Yeah, true enough. Yeah, I wonder if I could yeah, I wonder if I could get away with that. But no, I mean, you know, an ogre can look like anything. He could be the best looking guy too, right? But,
1: true. <laughs> no, very true.
0: But there's always that thought that, you know, age and gravity are going to have an effect or, <laughs> or you know, do you really want to be valued for, you know, externals like your appearance or, you know, what you have or, or what you do or or, you know, do you want to be valued for who you really are deep down? That's what draws me at least to her work.
1: Well, and I think in the first place, you need to be aware of your value deep down in order for you to love and be loved for who you are deep down.
0: Right.
1: And I think that that can be kind of hard in our current culture that is so flashy and based on the superficial. Yeah. And especially if our our beauty and our worth is rooted in Christ, and that that's not an appropriate topic for public discussion, it would be kind of hard to discuss what you're worth in the first place. Right. But yeah, I I do enjoy Jane Austen. I do enjoy Jane Austen. And I'm so glad, I was very excited when you brought Austen, for sure. Um, The other thing that strikes me about that quote is, it's not just what her father is experiencing, but recognizing the moral failures, the list of moral failures among multiple people that kind of led them to the tragedy in the first place. Right. And the whole family kind of trying to navigate this.
0: Right. There, there's so much here. And even Elizabeth saying, you know, you mustn't be too severe upon yourself. That's a lot of grace right there because she was the one who did tell him, no, you really shouldn't be letting Lydia go and do this. No, you know, this is the terrible things are going to happen. And he wouldn't listen. And he said, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. So here's Elizabeth saying, you know, don't beat yourself up rather than saying, you know, hey, I told you so. Uh, That's a lot of grace. It is.
1: Well, and especially because I told you so feels so good. (laughs) And that we really like being right.
0: Yeah. Another human trait. So. Yeah, you know, but you sh- who wants to be right in this case, right? <laughs> oh,
1: it's true. It's true. For those of you who haven't read Pride and Prejudice or at least seen the movie, do so because it's it's a it's a good darn story. That's all there is to it.
0: Yeah. It really is. And I I should plug a little bit here. I don't know if you've read my novel The Memoir of Johnny Divine, but when I wrote that, when I very specifically uh gave a little nod to Pride and Prejudice and that, but I give a little nod to, to Austin and most all of my books, but that one, um, the fact that you don't have any clue what Darcy's feeling until he just kind of blurts it out and proposes to Elizabeth in like the worst possible moment, <laughs> the worst possible way that you could even imagine doing it. In. Um, and, um, and it's kind of cool that you don't, you don't get his point of view, Um, I'm trying to think in the book if you do, but I don't think you do. In the the films, you don't. You have no clue. Right. And uh, I did kind of the same thing with with, uh, the actor, Johnny Devine. You have no idea what's going on in his head and heart as the story is progressing until, bam, it just kind of hits you.
1: Well, and I haven't had the chance to read that one yet. But I mean, isn't that a great lesson for all of us, though, that we we think we have this perfect perspective, but that in our lives, we don't see what's going on in the other players' minds?
0: Right, right. And that is a really huge, I don't know, it's a huge focus that I have in a lot of areas of life and uh, church service and writing and blogging and things is just I'm constantly reminded, and not because I'm perfect at this at all, but I'm constantly reminded that our perceptions and our our ideas and our um, just our general impression of other people can be so wrong. Um, we can be so quick to make assumptions. Um, we can also filter what somebody's going through based on our experience and think, you know we understand Ooh, when we, yeah when we don't, uh, there's just so much to be said about really being careful not to make assumptions about what's going on in another person and what they need. And and, you know, that's you know partly to our fault, but also partly to other people's fault too, because you know everybody seems to be, you know, good at wearing a mask, saying, you know, oh I'm fine, or someone could be, you know, swaggering, arrogant when really they're scared to death or, you know, whatever.
1: I think that's so common that people don't understand that what they think is being cocky is actually raging insecurity.
0: Could be, yeah, definitely.
1: Well, and now that you said that you've got a an Austin Bent to most of your books, I read two of your books and I loved both of them. Okay. So I wanna hear if there is an Austin Bent that I missed to either oh. of these stories.
0: I'm, I'm thinking I must have missed it in those two. I was focusing too hard on, on, in the secret place. That was Shakespeare. I had to do a, a kind of a crash course on Shakespeare. Um, but, uh, honestly, I think it was probably just my, th- my first three books that I was, you know, shoving as much. Um, I was, I wasn't shoving. I was weaving it in there, um, kind of tricky like to see if anybody would notice. So.
1: So now wow. I get to read all of your books yeah, to yeah, find I've the Austin sneakies. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> shucky darn. Read good yeah. books. That's not something I do. Never. <laughs> well, and I really like in the hidden place. We'll talk about the hidden place and then we'll get to Wings Like a Dove.
0: Okay. It is the secret place, by the way. Okay.
1: The secret place.
0: Yes. Thank I'll you. Right that just, just because it's straight out of Psalm 139.
1: So. Oh. Yeah, I remember that. See, and I told you that I would brain fart on titles, didn't I? (laughs)
0: Oh, it's okay. I brain fart on things, like important things. People's names. I mean...
1: Oh, I'm terrible with names. But it's okay. See, this was the benefit of me being in the Army, is my name tag was on my shirt every day. And so was everyone
0: else. (laughs) Everybody else,
1: (laughs) yeah. There are benefits to being in the military, and that is one of them.
0: Okay.
1: In The Secret place. I loved the Shakespeare references because this last year me and my girls in our homeschool we did a midsummer night's dream. Ah. And I just loved the imagery of it. And the other thing I loved about this book is the northwestern people. Like you and I are both northwest girls. Mm-hmm. And we are kind of a different breed. We are and just introducing us to the
0: greater world made me smile. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad you, you like that. I, I didn't realize that we have like our own weird dialects until um, someone came to live with us for a while that came from, I don't know, New Mexico or somewhere else. And they said, You guys have a really weird way of pronouncing words, like toward. You're supposed to say toward. Like what? Though. And. We say fur instead of four. Can I get something for you? <laughs> okay. It's just a, yeah. Well, but we do have a whole, you know, I guess we're considered highly independent. And
1: I love that you have a character that wears broom skirts and knobby sweaters and makes tea out of weird herbs and mushrooms.
0: Yeah. <laughs> because
1: she is me. Oh, Okay. Um, I'm wearing a knobby sweater that actually I found out today has a hole in the elbow that I've neglected to darn. So I guess but, I got to get on that.
0: But it's probably your favorite cozy loving sweater.
1: Yeah, it it is. Well, see, this one's a cardigan. I have a, I have like, I have four sweaters and I have one cardigan, two crew necks and one turtleneck. And I just rotate them through like three and a half seasons of the year because in Spokane, it's either like around forty or a hundred and twelve. So oh, wow. you know
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
1: During the forties I, I wear the, the wool sweaters and uh the rest of the year I wear a moo because it's too hot for anything else.
0: Right. Right. But, but do no, you quote Shakespeare at random moments and in apt situations? Um <laughs>
1: I I would say that I uh, badly quote Shakespeare because <laughs> I, I'm not actually as well-educated as people would like to imagine. We make a lot of Shakespeare references in our household because okay. my kids think that Bottom from Midsummer Night's Dream is about the funniest thing ever.
0: Yeah, that's hilarious.
1: And... They think it's really funny when he messes up the scripture that says, eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Um, he messes that up and says, eye has not heard heard and ear has not seen. And <laughs> and he, he messes it all up. And my kids think that's very funny. Oh, that's good. So um, we were lucky enough to actually see the play performed that they just had a new group start doing Shakespeare in the park here in Spokane.
0: Oh wow.
1: And it was this incredible experience because it was free and it was outside. Wow. And it was accessible for families. And That's I just amazing. thought I thought there was so much value in that. Making it so, you know, if your kid needs to wiggle something, you can take your kid and you can expose them to Shakespeare.
0: Yeah
1: but they don't need to worry about being locked in a seat for three hours.
0: Right. Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad they did that. It
1: it was really powerful. The other book of yours that I read that, I mean, I loved The Secret Place, but Wings Like a Dove just sold me. It really did. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you came up with this historical fiction story?
0: Actually, a couple of different things went into that, but, um, I had just actually finished writing the memoir of Johnny Divine and that one, that one came to me actually in a dream. It was odd. I was working on a different book and I had a dream about a, a man with a cane watching a woman walk out his door. And I knew he didn't want her to leave, but he couldn't say anything and he couldn't stop her. And that was it. that was a dream, and I woke up the next morning and jotted it down, and it just kind of fell into place and It needed the backdrop of something that would suit you know maybe a little bit older man, just kind of like tossing around ideas and i and I ended up with the nineteen fifties and communism and the Red Scare and I don't know gender and race inequality and different things being social issues that i felt made a good backdrop so and those kind of trickled their way into the personal lives of the main character so there was a backdrop but it, it became personal and uh, when i finished that my agent at the time said you you do that really well you need to do that again and so i thought well okay <laughs> what era is a backdrop and you know what issue would be particularly difficult during, you know, that era. And so I just always thinking about, you know, what we were saying earlier about misunderstanding other people, not really understanding where people are coming from or coming up with our own assumptions like prejudices and biases and things like that. And so just kind of naturally felt that nineteen thirties era there was not a lot of immigration going on then, but there was still a bit of that trickling in. And anyway, I just kind of was digging into the era just to see what would, what would stand out to me as, you know, this is society, this is out there, but, but what about this era would actually hit home and become a real personal conflict for somebody who would that be? You know, and I came up with a young Jewish woman who has come through, several conflicts in her life and some of them just because of being Jewish and so you know I got to thinking you know what would it be like to be born with a heritage that is causing you difficulty and discrimination in the world but it's something you didn't choose what could ratchet this up a little bit more and so she did end up having to be um pregnant and unmarried because that would have been a, an extremely difficult situation to be in in the 1930s and then especially being Jewish and there were you know places where in in the east coast I imagine there were a lot of different communities that were safe and you know um, what's the word sequestered I guess areas where people live among their own communities Uh, but outside those communities maybe they wouldn't have been as welcome Mm Mm-hmm. I just got really interested in in the whole idea of um, someone who is here but doesn't really feel like they belong, you know a lot of different ideas of things that we could feel now that are pretty universal but would have had you know a really devastating impact on somebody like that you know a twenty year old young Jewish woman who isn't sure that she even you know wants to keep observing the, the things that her, that her mother insists that she observe because, you know, all it's done is, you know, caused her trouble. So that idea of, you know, who am I really and where do I belong? I played with the idea that, you know, they always tell you as a storyteller, you know, take, take your character and then you know, put them in hot water and then throw more things at them. So <laughs> it just kind of came from seeing how much I could throw at this young woman.
1: Well, and you certainly did. And it was so revelatory the things that were going on in that time period. And the thing that I thought really showed how your storytellers your storytelling shines is you wrote this beautiful story where you have Jewish people, Protestant Christians, Catholic Christians, all working towards the good. Mm-hmm. And all working towards loving each other
0: better. Mm -hmm. In spite of not really being able to understand, you know, each other completely.
1: Well, and in spite of fighting, I don't know, the Ku Klux Klan.
0: Yeah, that was a really eye-opener, actually, Um, and and doing research for that, uh, finding out that there was a woman's a women's branch of the clan that was operating really separately from the men and their MO was even different you know instead of the violence and and the burning and the things that they were doing and the you know very obvious acts that they were doing um the the women's clan was very subversive and it depended on rumor and gossip and a lot of i um, just a lot of trying to appeal to women um, in a really subversive kind of a way, like social pressures, right. Um, appealing to, you know, maybe somebody who is, you know, maybe more simple in their thinking who would of course want, you know, a good, clean, safe, moral place to raise her children, you know, and they would appeal to that and say, you know, you need to help us, rid our community of these terrible people because they bring all this immorality here and um and you don't want that and and join us and help us you know clean up our community and, and make it a good safe place they were usually really involved with the temperance uh movement and i don't know different different things that were there to be you know social cleansing kind of thing and and they really did give the impression that they were very moral thinking people when really they were just very hateful and, and very bigoted and very, very short sighted, you know, very um, exclusive, which unfortunately is, you know, something that we've seen throughout a, a large part of our nation's history.
1: Including the present day, unfortunately. Right. You pick your issue and there's people aiming to divide and remove the humanity from the situation.
0: Right.
1: Well, and the thing that's hard is in the time period that you're talking about, and possibly even in some ways today, that the scientific and political community backed up a lot of what the bigoted people were saying that right. you, this is happening in the milieu of eugenics and the height of eugenics. So, you know, saying who the superior and inferior races are, you don't want those inferior people and the immigration quotas. And I think a a lot of Americans don't even realize that within the 20th century, Southern and Eastern European people were not even considered white and that there were even immigration (laughs) quotas on them. Right. And that's not to justify bigotry against any other group, or saying that um, that other types of bigotry aren't incredibly significant, but that it's all fun and games until it's your group that gets cut across. <laughs>
0: right, right. You know, and it was an agenda. There was absolute, you know, propaganda being created, but that had no basis. You know, which I touched on a little bit in the story that you know um, Anna. Was hearing from her friend Sarah, you know, the things that these women were saying, like that uh, a Catholic church was storing up an armory of weapons in their basement because they wanted to overthrow the government and that you know, they needed to be stopped, that kind of thing. I mean, there was no basis for any of this.
1: I was going to say, I have actually heard that argument about the Catholic Church stockpiling arms mm-hmm. for future war said to me to my face. <sighs> So this is not even an extinct argument. And, and I mean, when it comes to things like this, how do you even, you know, and this is why I think the power of fiction, you know, showing these stories and showing it playing out is powerful because how can I even refute that argument? Right. (laughs) Like, here's my parish, here's the basement. um, Yeah. Nothing there.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, I, I think one of the, one of the beauties of fiction one of the things I love to do with it is really to take those characters and you know treat them like Plato and kind of push and pull them through situations and you know because they're different people you can kind of show different responses, different reactions, different ways of you know processing things. And I can tell you, I I probably gave um, Sarah Tucker, who is um, the main character's kind of, you know, best friend that she's gotten to know and befriended. Sarah is this, if you haven't read the story, she's um, kind of a Midwesterner, simple. She thinks she's got not much to say and doesn't think, you know, anything she has to contribute is of any importance, but she really does, you know, have a lot more, a lot more to, to say than she realizes. But she basically represents you know, someone who maybe isn't digging really deep and looking into things and just wants a simple life and just wants to, you know, love her kids and and raise them and, and be a good mom, be a good wife. You know, what if someone like that who wasn't very educated was told all these things? And, you know, in the story, I, I gave her this really deep longing for friendship. So there's this added pull, you know. These women are befriending her, and she feels like she's part of this group, and she really wants that. She's really craving that, and and so she doesn't really question what they're telling her at first until Anna comes along and makes her really stop and and think. You know, do you think that's really true? These stories they're telling you about blacks and Catholics and 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 people from other countries. You really think that's true? And you know, Sarah's the kind of person who has to decide for herself what she really believes to be true and what's right and what the true Christian thing to do and what's what moral is really, um, being, you know, looked at here. And yeah, I didn't know when I first created her that she was actually going to end up having a heroic moment of her own. So she just kind of pulled that on me (laughs) near the end of the story. But yeah, I like to put characters through their, various paces just because you know like we were saying earlier fiction can be a mirror that we can hold up to ourselves and decide oh well what would I do in this situation or oh what she just did I would do that I'm gonna have to rethink that or I've come across a couple novels like that and and those are the ones that really make me stop and put it down and think and that's really actually what I aim to do when I write a novel is supposed to entertain and and I get that and I try to do that first but I always always like to try to write a story that might make you do that and at some point stop and say, "Oh, I never really thought about this or I never noticed that about myself," but I do that too. What might God think about this? And is this something that you know he's interested in or he cares about or he'd like to see me change? And what
1: kind of hero is he calling you to be?
0: Exactly. And and not the hero like You know, the guy next door that you might be comparing yourself to either.
1: Oh, isn't comparison the thief of joy? Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I think that's one of the things that's so neat about Wings Like a Dove is, like you said, Sarah's heroism, you know, she isn't flashing a shiny sword or anything like that. She's not putting everyone to shame with her shining intellect, but she has this beautiful, natural love. Mm-hmm. And that's her weapon.
0: I wanted to show that it's possible to love even if you don't really understand another. You know, even Anna comes to a point where love looks like mercy, you know, when you're when your enemy is right in front of you and they're hurting and you know, you could choose to rub in their their predicament or you could choose to have mercy on them, and that's love. Yeah, and that's heroic too.
1: Oh, it is. Well, and it's it's kind of a similar to the Kind of similar to what you read in Pride and Prejudice, you know, that you have this opportunity to lord over someone else. Yeah. And you choose the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Everyday heroes.
0: Yeah. I think that what's behind that heroism, at least what's, what's always on my mind is grace, you know, grace that's blind, grace that's deliberate, grace that's not been earned or deserved. And really, you know, if we're talking about you know nineteen thirties or nineteen fifties or you know two thousand twenty two if we're going to really get along and really be able to work side by side you know with as as diverse as we are in so many ways, I really think the only way we're gonna achieve that is with deliberate grace you know it's a choice it is a choice, gift freely given,
1: yeah. Will we participate with it?
0: Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, you know, as a Christian, I think it's, I'm constantly having to remind myself, oh, I've been given grace. I'm going to have to show that same grace, you know. In fact, most of my stories are in some way about that, you know, both the characters need for God's grace and then a, a grace that others need from them, woven around romance of course. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, and isn't that the crazy thing is that he so often invites us to be his channel of grace into the world. Mm-hmm. You know, he he doesn't typically directly zap people, you know, and not, not in the bad way, but you know what I mean, that it 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 tends to be through relationships.
0: Yeah.
1: It tends to be through other people. Right. Wow. Well, and that's that's a message that we so need right now in our world that's so divisive and broken and hurting. And it seems to be looking for answers of, um, in echo chambers rather than in fresh air.
0: Right. Right. I mean, it's hard for people to spend time really with someone or, or in some ideology that they don't understand. You know, it's hard. And I feel like I've learned in, various relationships, sometimes you have to say, I don't understand you, but I love you because God loves you. I guess the basic act of love is compassion, I think. Sometimes that's all you can do, but I think sometimes that's the best thing you can do is to show understanding, even if you don't really.
1: Well, and the the word compassion comes from compasio, to share the
0: sufferings of. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to understand them to share them. It's true. It's true. You just have to be present. Yeah.
1: Well, what are you presently working on?
0: Aha! I'm working on planning my next novel, and it's in planning stages now. And then I'm also working out a series of devotionals, and I haven't yet decided if it's devotionals with a a flare of a memoir, which I think I'm going to mash up and call a Devo <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> So I don't know if it's a book or a series of, of books. It just kind of depends on how much I want to put in there, but it, it tends to be, so I am an expert on learning things the hard way. So I have a lot, <laughs> a lot of stuff that I, I'm always happy to share if anyone's willing to listen the things that God has shown me because um, he's had to show me a lot. <laughs> over life. So anyway, that's that's something that I keep feeling a tug to do. But yeah, there will be another novel. I have a couple of books in mind, and a couple of them are probably sequels to The Secret Place because I loved spending time on the Mackenzie River so much that uh, I wanted to go back there. So um, I don't know if you remember in The Secret Place um, when there was a search party going on for the missing child. One of the people that were coming to help was uh, a fishing tour guide named Lucky Jack. Mm -hmm. He just mentioned like once or twice in the book, but he actually, uh, I decided he has a daughter who's going to come back from where she was trying to make a big name for herself, but failed miserably. And so she's going to come back and add a B and B to dad's a fishing tour business, only to find out that he has mysteriously sold it to some guy and disappeared. So Ooh. she needs to make a go of this, but she's going to have to get this guy's help, and he's not very willing to help.
1: I love a little mystery. Yeah. That sounds fabulous.
0: It could be. We'll see. It's just an idea, but uh...
1: <laughs> well, judging from the other books you've written, I don't think I'm in danger of being bored. Shall we say? Okay. Good.
0: Good. Glad to hear that. <laughs>
1: Well, that all sounds fantastic. And we've, we've delved into some kind of heavy stuff in this chat, but maybe that's what people need on their hearts right now is to know that the heavy stuff that they're not the only ones experiencing it.
0: Right. I mean, it's all around us. Honestly, I don't like to focus on that. In fact, when I was writing The Secret Place, I had it originally set to start in fall of 2020. And then twenty twenty then actually happened, and we went. um, Either we're going to have to include a pandemic and a bunch of really bad wildfires that basically wiped out most of the area where my book is set, or we're going to have to change the the dates, which I did because who wants you know to read about all this devastation? So, I mean, you can't you know you can't get away from the heavy things because they're right there staring us in the face but i really hope that if someone's not afraid to pick up the book because i see people writing reviews and they say oh it's really hard topics but you know there's hope or oh they're really sensitive topics but they're handled with grace or things like that and i'm like oh i hope hope that doesn't scare people off because what i really really aim to do is to show that no matter how heavy or sensitive you know the topics are there is hope there really is hope
1: I think that's really important. And I, I I I think you do handle these things, but I don't think they're the heavy topics. Um how do I put this? I think people want to hear about the heavy topics with hope. I think if it if everything is just super light and fluffy, and not that there's anything wrong with a light and fluffy book, but if everything is light and fluffy and people are still kind of in a, a tough spot, they get done with it and they Feel
0: kind of crumbled, right? I don't feel much, much better. Yeah, I mean, I would hope that that people wouldn't be afraid to pick them up. I know some kind of shy away, and I get it. You know, if you're at all low or having been through something hard, you just don't really want to read about somebody else's hard time. But for those that are able and willing, you know, and I do try to throw some cuckoo characters or some you know comedic relief or something in there to help lighten it up. But again, with the different characters. That I'm playing with, like Plato, I try to show different, different ways that you could respond to all this stuff and that there is healing. And even if you make mistakes, there's forgiveness and grace and healing. And the Holy Spirit is so gentle and kind. He does come in and, you know, even if you messed up, you're not, you're not done by any means. He's, he's waiting to pick up the pieces. So, I mean, I don't know. I just want to show that no matter what people have done or you know, what mistakes they've made or how faithless people have become, you know, he's still faithful. He, he, one thing he's taught me, well, over life, but just kind of hit hard home more recently was, you know, this righteousness that you're trying so hard to maintain. You don't need to, you know, Jesus did it. And there is not a single thing you can do to earn it. And there's not a single thing you can do to lose it. So just rest, you know, and, and his unshakable love and just try to try to just be at peace there because that's where he wants you so that's kind of my goal is various characters various situations various troubles traumas conflicts mistakes whatever there is always hope
1: and just learning to accept that love
0: yeah and not to think oh today i don't deserve it well you know you don't ever really deserve it. You didn't it. deserve it yesterday yeah. either. When you thought you were doing great, guess what? You weren't.
1: <laughs> right. Well, I've always done great, so I don't have this struggle. Oh, you no. Know, okay. As I see the thunder clouds amassing outside of my window to remind me otherwise. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but no, that's a great reminder. But we're going to shift gears and we're going to go into this rando round with my 100 overcaffeinated questions because. Us Northwestern girls, we love our coffee, don't we? We do. I know I don't have you on video, but I have two different sets of dice that you get to pick from. I either have pink ones with turquoise sparkles, or I have tie-dye.
0: Oh, tie-dye. Who doesn't Absolutely. love tie-dye? I, I'm a it, boomer. Come on. <laughs> I'm
1: I'm Gen X, but I love tie-dye. I love tie-dye because it's cheery. Yeah. It's very cheery. And each one is unique. So let's see what we got here. We've got 36. How would your family and friends describe you?
0: Oh, you're assuming I have friends. Oh, I'm just kidding. Um. Well, even introverts
1: have one, I've heard. Yeah,
0: no, I have, I have a few. I have a few people fold. Oh, that's really a hard question because I am one of those people that sees like every single flaw I have and that's all I focus on and then talk to somebody and they say oh you're so kind and you're so whatever you're so giving You're I don't know so I suppose my my family my immediate family husband and kids would say I'm a sort of a focused and slightly obsessive person and I probably spent a lot of time when my kids were growing up like getting stuff done, getting stuff done, and then wishing later, oh, you know, I probably should have gotten down on the floor and played with them, but I was, you know, making sure things were getting done. So I I can tend to be a little task-driven. I don't know if they'd say that, though. I don't know. Uh,
1: They would probably say that you're an amazing mom that showed them how to work hard.
0: uh, Like, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. I, I'm a lot. I'm a lot uh, more patient and less obsessive you now that I have grandkids. It's like, oh, forget the dishes. Let's just make some, you know, cookies or something. And who cares if we make a mess? Which is hard. It's like, just forget the mess.
1: I'm witnessing that with my mom, with uh-huh. my girls, and getting to see my mom as a grandmother instead of a mom. And it's it's a uh-huh. really beautiful thing to see.
0: I'm glad you think it's beautiful because I always think my kids are like, well, why didn't she do that when we were kids? But <laughs> um, but it's free babysitting too, so they don't come So
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's actually where my girls are right now, at Grandma's house. Oh. So let's see what else we've got on here. 28. You're on a desert island. You have enough food and water. What two things would you also need?
0: A copy of a Jane Austen book. We're assuming that I have the entire Bible memorized, but that's not yes. possible. So, because it, uh, <laughs> it would have to be a Bible first, if you know if that's not the case. But uh
1: we'll assume Bible is memorized.
0: Okay, we'll assume that. And Jane Austen and gosh, so there's enough food and water. Did you say cheesecake? Is that part of the food? <laughs> Can I tell you the most Uh,
1: hilarious thing in the whole world about a cheesecake? What? Before we went to record this episode, I gave my husband strict instructions (laughs) to go get me a cheesecake.
0: Oh my gosh. We're soulmates. (laughs) So
1: you've got Jane Austen and cheesecake.
0: Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's it.
1: When you were saying a copy of Jane Austen, at first I thought you said a coffee. And I was like, yes,
0: this oh. is a woman after my
1: own heart. Because <laughs> it did say food and water. It did not say coffee. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I guess it depends on how long we think we're going to live on this island. If it's past eight hours, I better have some coffee.
0: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, I don't really I don't really need a lot of stuff. It's really sad because, like, my kids will say, what do you want for your birthday? Like, I don't know. I don't need anything? What what do I want? I don't know. Introverts, you know, we can just entertain ourselves for hours, I suppose, just with our own imagination. So I guess I travel light. I don't know.
1: There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. So we've got 72. What about the status quo do you reject? And why?
0: There's so much to that, honestly. So I'm going to ask you how you'd answer that. Have you ever had to
1: answer that? I haven't. You're sneaking <laughs> up on me, and that's okay. So, here's what I'm going to say I reject the idea that we are unloved and unlovable by God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And because I think it leads to all of our, almost all of our problems, really. That feeling, that striving, that scarcity mentality, that there's a scarcity of love out there for me. Leads us to do the craziest things, to try to earn something, whether it be love or power or money or influence or beauty or whatever. And it's like, don't you know how infinitely valuable you are just as you were made? Right. That you were made for eternity. Right, and he is enough.
0: And he made you more beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's that's my answer.
0: That's yours. Yeah. Uh, what well, you did make me think of something that I think is a status quo that I do fight against, and that is, if God really is good, then why, you know, etc. Mm. And uh, something that he has really drilled into me in the last several years is that he is good, absolutely good, period. There is no no questioning that. And sometimes we do question it because things aren't going well or the way we want them to or the way we think they ought to. The fact that he, you know, isn't making things right, you know, in our book doesn't mean that he isn't good. It means that you know, a lot of other things that it isn't time or that he has a plan he's got his plan in motion, and we can't see it, but we can absolutely trust it that it is good because he is good you know there isn't a an evil speck about him, there isn't malice or you know an agenda that that isn't for our best, so yeah, it's hard because you know people you know Christians and non-christians but even christians will question you know but is he always good that's something that um i think is behind maybe a lot of people's struggle with faith is whether or not god's always good i can see that
1: that whole the question of suffering
0: yeah yeah how could he let this happen if he's good it isn't happening because he isn't good it's happening because the world is so broken.
1: And yet he can still write straight with crooked lines, and he'll still turn that to a good that we can't see, that we're not capable of seeing.
0: Right, right. You know, Job's question, you know, why? And God's answer was, that's not the question you should be asking me, because you can't understand the answer to it.
1: Right, and then he gives Job, like, the whole smackdown. down. Yeah. Job, I love Job because Job makes me laugh. And I know that sounds terrible, but it's just because I see myself there and my life, you know, hasn't been nearly so hard. And he's like, okay, did you make the oceans? Did you, you know, battle the Leviathan? Mm -hmm. Did you do that? Because I have. Next question, Job, you know? Yeah. Oh, well, I think my last question for our time today is what gives you hope right now?
0: And that would be, I know that there's there's a lot in our world that would make you know anybody struggle with hope. I think for me, just those things make it all the more clear that this world is not my home. You know, I hate to sound morose or anything and Part of this is because I am you know, getting older and you, know, you start seeing that finish line a little closer and you realize, you know, when when this is done, I'll be in a place where it's amazing and beautiful. And I can't even imagine how great and, you know, the cheesecake will be endless and I'll have <laughs> no calories in it. And just that there is an amazing and perfect eternity on the horizon that is mine That I'm not going to lose just because I blow it one day and, you know, tell somebody I told you so when I shouldn't have, or my hope is not in me being perfect. And my hope is not in this world becoming, you know, better by, you know, us pulling up our bootstraps, because I don't think we're, we're managing to get that. At least not from where I sit, but yeah, my hope is in the promise of a beautiful eternity that, that is mine. You know, and the one who promised it. Thank you so much for painting that beautiful picture for us. And thank you so
1: much for coming on the show and having this conversation with me.
0: Well, I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you.
1: And keep writing those great books and I'm going to keep reading them.
0: All right. I will.
1: (laughs) All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, Click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.